This podcast discusses violence, drug use, and other adult themes. Listener discretion is advised. All right, welcome back to yet another episode of Breaking Pod. Today we're doing season five, episode nine. We are starting the second half of the final season, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, good friend, uh, TV show connoisseur and filmmaker, Josh Goldman. Josh, how are you? Wow, you, you try you try to throw me a bone there with a nice intro there. Yeah, Appreciate man. It. Uh, we don't talk enough about how Appreciate you are a filmmaker, yeah. but but you are. I mean, I like to lean on your expertise for various things and. You know, we talked, for example, about the uh, the single camera uh, shot or shooting. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you can walk me through yes, things like that right. because you have some actual experience behind the camera. Yes, yes. Not in, a, not in a technical professional sense, but, you know, I do have a sibling who works in, you know, professional TV. She's in the costume department. She does on several TV shows, uh, you know, CB, uh, let's see, ABC show, um, uh I think she worked on a Netflix show and then definitely an Amazon, a couple of Amazon prime shows. So she's definitely like made her, made her market there in New York. But, um, but she's also been working on these like masterclass things, which are, which are those, um, you know, like classes you can take, learn from the experts. So she has a lot of experience around big professional production. So I sort of lean on her too, as well when I'm learning about different things. So it's always fun to, to learn. But yes, yes, I do have a background in in filmmaking. So I, I, I and I also like learning about all of it too. So I find it fascinating to read behind the scenes, look at the behind the scenes stuff, I read this great book about editing called In the Blink of an Eye, which talks about sort of the theory behind editing. It's not just so much cutting together clips, which is what it is at its most basic, but it's also about sort of when you when you cut, why you cut. And it's sort of the, the thing that I found interesting that you probably not thought about is that watching television or movies is the only time in our lives that we feel comfortable jumping from perspective to perspective. Like if you think about your own life, you're constantly looking from your own perspective and it's the very linear thing. But in movies and TV, you can go flashbacks and flash forwards. And in fact, we're gonna talk about a flash forward again in this episode. But for some reason, because it's become part of our culture, it's not weird anymore to jump from thing to thing from jump to jump from one character to another. So I always find that interesting. And it was really interesting to read, you know, a, a really well known, well respected editor sort of talk about his theory on that. No, I love it. Does your sister like Breaking Bad? She has tried a couple times. She has not been able to get into it. It's sort of the same thing. She said, you know, we watched the pilot a couple times. We watched a couple episodes, but I think it's really that first season hump that we've got to get people over but once they get past that, you know, and they yeah. can really dive into it. Bummer. I was going to say we should have her on as a guest and we can talk about, you know, colors and costume I know. coordination. I, know. I would love to have her perspective, but I will also say this just as a very brief tease, Josh, um, you know, everything Josh was saying about kind of the technical aspects of filmmaking. Um, I really like that stuff too. And like learning about it and Josh and I, I'll just say, you know, we have eight more episodes of this and probably a final episode of breaking pod just to kind of wrap it all up and talk through it. But Josh and I are not going away, so we will be back with another project that that might kind of uh, you know attract the attention of of our listeners who do like the sort of um, the, the more the more technical aspects of filmmaking as well, and just, and just talking about you know good films and good filmmaking. So stay tuned yeah. for that. But I'll just I'll leave the brief tease of that. Josh, are you ready to dive into season five, episode nine, Blood Money? Let's do it. Eight episodes left. All right, here we go. I'm going to start with the well, we call it a two minute summary. As you pointed out, Josh, it's more like a 30 second summary these days. So this one's yeah. also not too long, but let me just read it here and we'll talk about it. 
In a flash forward, Walter arrives at his dilapidated and fenced-off abandoned house to retrieve a hidden vial of ricin. In the present, Hank requests all files of the Fring case and matches the handwriting in Walter's copy of Leaves of Grass with that of Gale. Meanwhile, Jesse throws his money away in a residential neighborhood. Walt's cancer returns, and after a chemo treatment, he, fi he finds his copy of Leaves of Grass missing. Walt immediately searches for and finds a GPS tracker on his car, suspecting that Hank has now uncovered the truth. Walt confronts Hank, who accuses him of being Heisenberg. Walt warns Hank to tread lightly. And that's the end, Josh. What grade do you give this summary? Yeah, this one's fine. It's just, you know, I think the thing that the summaries miss is sort of like what particular scenes are about. Like, for example, we're going to talk about this one a little bit more because this was my my best moment in this episode. But it's the flash forward. And this summary very clearly states that the the sort of end of the flash forward is that Walt was looking inside the outlet for for the vial of rice. Yes, that is technically true, but it sort of misses what I found great about that moment, which we'll discuss in a minute. But there's there's a lot more depth to that that I think these summaries often miss. And I'm not faulting summaries for missing those things, but it just sort of seems to to whittle it down to a place that almost makes it feel like this wasn't the episode, if that makes sense. So I'm going to give it a, a C. I, I do appreciate how this time you did not read in a hyperlink flash forward and hyperlink <laughs> because because that's what I it's a little cumbersome. <laughs> yeah. You know, as we learned last time from my mistake that that was not the best. And in fact, listening back to that episode, it sounded awful. So <laughs> I'm glad I, that you didn't. I love how GPS is hyperlinked here. I think that's, yeah, that's really just in case you don't know. Yeah. In case you've never heard of GPS or don't know what the technology consists of. In can... 2020, <laughs> if you haven't heard of GPS, I'm not sure where you're you're living in the United States. You can read all about it in the summary. I also wanted to get your your take, Zach, on a, on a grammatical thing here where the last sentence ends with tread lightly, which is in quotes. Would you put the period inside the quote or outside as it is here? I'm an inside the quote, man. I think Me either too. either can be technically correct. Um, it's not always. I'm, I'm, correct, an, I'm an inside. But, but yeah. I'm an inside the quote person as well. Yeah, so I would go inside. I'm gonna I'm gonna demote it a little bit for that as well. What That's do you fair. Think uh, I'll go a little higher than you. You said C. I'll go C plus. Um, but I think you know this. The, it reads very clinically. You know, as if like a, a mathematician wrote this. And, you know, no, yeah. no disrespect to mathematicians. Mathematicians can be good writers. I'm just saying, like someone with a very mathematical mindset, as opposed to, for example, an English literature mindset, wrote this. And so, you know, I'll just I'll downgrade it for style a little bit. And you've got the uh, the outside the quote period as well yeah all right well let's go on to trivia and bloopers i've got a few things here and then we can dive into the broader thoughts and themes just a, a few quick things one around eight minutes and 20 seconds right when hank crashes his car not sure if you noticed this josh but there are crew members that you can see very mm -hmm. briefly when the camera is uh from the vantage point of the yard in which hank is crashing you can see across the street and there are a couple of cast members or not cast members crew members there who look to be holding some sort of equipment from the scene it's a very, very quick glimpse, and so I didn't see it the first time through. I read about this blooper on IMDb, went back, double-checked, and yes, sure enough, if you pause, I mean, it's it's, it's less than a second for sure that, yeah. that they're there, but if you pause it, you can actually uh, make out there's something there. So I'm guessing the editors just thought this is fast enough, like we can get away with it, despite them right. being in the shot, because they they could definitely be passed off as like neighbors who are just out in their driveway. There's a really interesting, just a, a short uh, uh, thing here. There's a really interesting uh, behind the scenes tidbit from the from the comic book movie Shazam, which came out last year. Yeah. The director realized that there was a moment where one of the characters is running through the mall where there is clearly like crew members holding a bunch of stuff. And it's pretty visible if you see. So he said that instead of trying to paint them out, he just painted, you know, digitally like bag shopping bags. 
on t- on top of their equipment. That's so it hilarious. looked like they were in the in the mall. And you know, then you can't even tell. So I love when you you sort of see blooper like he clearly admits, look, we made a mistake and we fixed it. This is how we fixed it. So I love when, you know, people are upfront about that. They could have done the same thing here. You know, it could could have been a neighbor if they needed to, but I think you're right. It was it was fast enough. That's really funny. I also wonder like how does this happen? You know, like I, I was on set for that short film that was shooting um, yeah. last month, as you know, that you and I are kind of working on um, from a, a podcast perspective. But um, I, you know, it was, it was very clear, like who was and who was not in the shot every time. So I don't know how that happens yeah. where it's like, oh, oops, we had a couple of crew members <laughs> just like in the camera view. <laughs> I think it's one of those things as you scale things up, it's just like harder and harder to keep track of everybody sure. who's on set and yeah. like where the camera is. So yeah, that makes sense. You never know. All right. Well, the other thing I wanted to mention, this is this is kind of funny. IMDb says this is a blooper, um, and they, but I'm not convinced. They they say that Skinny Pete and Badger, when they're having that ridiculous Star Trek conversation and Badger is talking about a food replicator, um, that is an error, according to IMDb, because really what Star Trek used at that point was food synthesizers and that uh, Badger references Tula Berries. Skinny Pete says that's from Voyager, but I guess Tula Berries are really from Deep Space Nine. Not any fact that I would know, but I think it's hilarious that I'm like, oh, this is clearly a script error when really like, are we supposed to believe that Skinny Pete and Badger are going to be absolutely correct in their understanding of <laughs> Deep Space Nine versus Voyager versus original Star Trek? No, no. I do feel like that the Trekkies are pretty active on the on the Reddit threads and on IMDb no you know, in, info boards. So yeah. I think that probably they're they're out there making sure like, you know, actually, yeah, this is actually, actually incorrect. <laughs> uh, the Tula Berries are from Deep Space Nine, Skinny Pete. Classic. And if we have any Star Trek listeners, uh, we're, not, we're not making fun. <laughs> we, we appreciate your passion and we're glad you're here for but, sure. For sure. But they are very passionate, just like Star Wars. People are passionate. too. My dad's a Trekkie, but only for the original Star Trek okay. series, the William yeah. Shatner, Leonard. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, I grew up watching those with him, uh, obviously reruns at that point because i think they originally aired in the mid 60s if that's 60s? right yeah i was gonna say um, 60s. and so even my dad like when he watched them as a kid i think he would watch them as reruns and of course like a few years after the original but i don't right, think right. he was watching them you know simulcast so yeah all right uh so broader thoughts and themes let's move on to that josh i got a few things here we've got um walt's cancer being back uh it looks like it's back i think we ended the last episode with um walt's going into the mri machine or the pet scan machine whatever it is and we're led to believe that his cancer is back. It's not definitive. Um, and I, you know, I was going to ask you, you know, do you think his cancer is really back based on what we know as a viewer to this point in the show? Because it's not clear. I think the best evidence we have is that he, you know, he, he goes to he, he goes to vomit and has to take his anti-nausea medication um, that right. he took previously when he was on chemo. So I think that that tends to that tends to uh, lead me to believe that his cancer really is back, but he's obviously keeping it from his family if that's the case. And we've had no definitive, um, you know, articulation that that is the case that his cancer is back. We haven't seen him, for example, have a conversation with his doctor in which his doctor says the cancer is back. I'm going to start you on chemo. We've just gone from this, you know, we ended the last episode with him going into a PET scan machine, and then now we're here where he is, you know, experiencing nausea and having to take medication for it, etc. So, what do you think? Is his cancer really back? Is that what we're supposed to take away? Yeah, I think that's what's implied here, you know, because he he's not otherwise sick when he goes into the bathroom. Like we haven't seen him, you know, uh, say, hey, I have a stomach bug or, you know, anything like that. So I think that's what we're made to believe here. I do want to point out, though, that he does do the trick that Gus did. He puts the towel under his knees. You yes. know, that we talked about yep. in the last episode where he sort of takes on the trait of which, to be honest, is just more comfortable that way. If yeah. You have to kneel in front of the toilet. So, you know, maybe Gus had it right all along. Well, it's, it's such the, an interesting like just to, to stay on that point a little bit. It's such an interesting, um, you know, 
I guess, like sleight of hand by the director here because it is, I think, showing us that Walt takes on the habits of those he kills. But he didn't see Gus do that, right? Gus did right. that in the bathroom when he was there by himself to vomit yeah. out the poison. So it's not like Walt has seen that, right? It's it's a it's a sort of an unconscious, you know, sort of ignorant thing. But he ends up taking on the habits and behaviors of the people he kills, which is right. really remarkable. I do have a small nitpick in this in this scene about him. Since we're here talking about this scene where he's he's throwing up, this is when he notices his copy of Leaves of Leaves of Grass is gone. But if you look at how the little basket is set up behind the toilet, he actually had to like lift up the magazines to like dig down. Why is he look like he's clearly not feeling well? Like he's he's in there for a reason. Like it's not as if he's going to to read something. So I'm not really sure why he decides to rifle through that at the at the moment. Yeah, I hear that. I mean, that's kind of how we felt about Hank, right? Yeah. Like diving down to the bottom of the basket <laughs> while he was, you know, taking, yeah, not, taking none of these t- magazines, <laughs> taking a two minute dump. Uh, I don't know. I saw this as Walt realizing, like, wait a minute, Hank was in here, and then he wasn't feeling well all of a sudden where's, yeah. where's my book did he see my book you know and yeah um so that's how i read that which might explain why he was kind of burrowing down to the bottom no Are, that's fair do you have other thoughts on the broader thoughts and themes here josh yeah i have i have two uh, broader thoughts and themes one i will save because it, it corresponds with my best writing but one i think we should talk about now because we did have that conversation about the colors last episode i was more attuned to the colors in this episode and if you notice walt and skyler are both wearing white-ish clothes. And I found that interesting because, first of all, both of them look absolutely out of place wearing these these colors. And white is often, uh, you know, meant to represent purity right. and sort of innocence. And so it's almost as if they're, they're trying to put on that facade, but they can't really pull it off. So Walt has on this like beige sweater and he's got on a, you know, a an off-white shirt underneath and he's got on khaki pants and Skylar has on a, a white dress, but they just look out of place. Yeah. And so I think that was intentional because both of them are trying to resume this normal life per se and, and try to fit in and show that they are these honest business people, but something just feels and looks a little bit out of place because neither of them wear these colors regularly. And the other thing too, is that it just sort of, it just sort of feels like they're, they're trying as opposed to actually being a certain way, if that makes sense. Yeah, I totally agree. And the only other thing I'll add is that Walt's wearing that sweater, which has kind of like a Mr. Rogers vibe to it too, yeah. right? Like your friendly neighborhood high school chemistry teacher. And in reality, he's basically as far from that as you can possibly get. He's as yeah. far from Mr. Rogers as, as you could be. I wouldn't want him, you know, singing to me in the afternoon. Uh, no, thank you. No, no. <laughs> it's a <laughs> beautiful day. Yeah. That's all I have for broader thoughts and themes for now. I, I will come back to one when we get to my best writing. Okay, yeah, let's uh, let's um, go to that then when we get there. Let's start with best scene, though, and I'm only going to talk about uh, my best scene here because your best scene is the same as my best writing, so we'll save that. Um, my best scene nomination is when Walt is trying to convince Jesse that he didn't kill Mike. I think he's dead, and I think you know that. I don't know that. I don't. Listen to me. I did not kill Mike. So I like this for all the reasons that we've talked about these similar scenes before. The father-son dynamic here going on. Uh, We have the father figure trying to get the son to open up to him. 
uh, and we have the father figure earnestly pleading with the son for him to believe him. Uh, and we know what's going on here. We know that it is all just a complete charade for Walt. It's a complete lie. Um, and I like this scene because I think the acting is just a little bit stronger than the scene between um, Hank and Walt, which we'll talk about because that's um, actually my best writing nomination um, and your best scene nomination. Uh, but I really like the dynamic here and what's going on. And in particular, I think Aaron Paul's performance is just stellar. Uh, he has, you know, for most of this conversation, he looks off to the right, away from Walt. Walt's on his left. He looks to the right. And there's this remarkable part of that where Jesse looks like almost to the camera. It's just like a few degrees kind of right of where the camera is. So it's almost like he's looking at us, the audience. And I thought that was really powerful because we see Jesse trapped in this situation with Walt. Um, you know, I think you pointed out in our little, uh, our notes document here, Josh, that Jesse can't even get Saul to do his bidding without Saul running to Walt and telling Walt. So the whole reason Walt's here is because he brings Jesse's money back that Jesse asked Saul to disperse to the parents of the boy that Todd killed and Andrea and Brock. Saul wouldn't do it, went to Walt. Walt is delivering the money back. So Jesse really, I think, has to feel trapped here. And when he looks almost at the camera, it's almost like a plea to the audience, right? Like, like help me or like I'm really stuck and I don't know how to get out of here. And his eyes are welling up with tears. And it's just a really remarkable performance. And the, the way that they employ the placement of the camera, I think is really stellar as well. Yeah, it, it's a great scene. And I, I wanted to ask you, is this the best acting that Walt, the character has done? Not not Brian Cranston. We know he's a good actor, but Walt has tried to act before and he's never come off as genuine. And even though we know he is absolutely telling a lie here, he sounds pretty convincing. I mean, he's not doing his usual like sputtering on and on yes. and on. I mean, he does he does talk a little bit, but you know, he very simply states, "I did not kill Mike." And I mean, like he seems pretty believable. And maybe that's a result of the fact that he's done this so many times, which is a further strike on his moral character that he's just so comfortable now with with like lying. You know, you talk about digging yourself a hole when you tell a lie. I mean, like he is so far, he's like on the other side of the earth at this point. You know, he's dug so many holes down. It's it's like it's crazy. And I think he's the most convincing he's ever been when he's trying to I, I don't know if Jesse believes him. You don't get the sense that he does. And maybe Jesse just can't believe him at this point because there have been so many lies that he's been ex you know, Walt's been exposed as telling before, but you know, I think it's probably the, the most convincing Walt has ever been. Yeah, totally agree. I mean, you hit the nail on the head. His tell is normally that he just sort of, you know, uh, jabbers on and on. Yeah. Uh, and he's not doing that here. He's very earnest. But I think the remarkable thing is that I don't I don't think Jesse buys it because it's it's when it's specifically when Walt insists that he didn't do it, that we get that sort of look towards the camera, almost a plea for help from Jesse. You know, it's just like he, now at this point, he knows Walt is really lying. It would be almost better if Walt was like, you're right, Jesse, you know, I killed him and this is this is how it went down that I didn't feel like I had a choice, et cetera, et cetera. Like at least have him try to rationalize what really happened. But instead, I think Jesse knows Walt's lying, despite the fact that this is indeed Walt's best performance. But I think that makes it really more unsettling for Jesse, right? Because Walt's not displaying any of the telltale signs of his lying. And yet I still think Jesse knows or at least strongly suspects that he is lying. And that has to be even more scary than normal for Jesse, right? Yeah, I, I mean, Walt should just tell him the truth. I mean, there's really no reason at this point. Yeah, not exactly. To tell him. He, Jesse doesn't have any incentive to turn him in. 
you know, I mean, I think if he explained what happened, Jesse would might understand. I don't know. It just seems very strange that his first instinct is to just absolutely doesn't even try to get around it. He just says, I did not do this, which is also very strange. You know, usually he does try to talk his way out of it before he has to, you know, get into a complete and total lie. But this time, totally different. Well, it's the mark of hubris, right? I mean, and that's that's what Walt does. I mean, that every time Walt overextends himself in this episode, it's because, it's because he's so confident that he can get the job done. And in this case, he's confident he can make Jesse believe him, but he doesn't. And, you know, we're about to see the, the pretty devastating consequences of that for both Jesse and Walt in the next few episodes here. But this relationship is now irreparably broken despite Walt's insistence that he can repair it and, and get it back. Yeah, definitely. All right, let's go on to best moment, Josh. Your nomination is about the cold open, so talk to us about that. Yeah, so there's no audio to play here. There's actually, I think the only audio is at the very, very end when he sees his neighbor and he says, you know, good morning, and she drops her groceries, which is then mirrored in the in the present time, which I think is an interesting and nice uh, filmmaking technique. But what I like about the scene, you know, the, the two minute summary pointed out that, oh, it's all, it's all about him going to get the rice in, which yes, it is. But what I found most striking about it is just sort of like the very deep sadness of him walking through this place that is completely run down. It's been tagged with graffiti. It's completely, you know, abandoned. And it looks like, you know, people might have squatted in there or like homeless people have been in there and there's nothing redeeming about it. And of course there, there are people in the, in the pool, in the backyard, you know, skating. And it's just, I think what I, what, what struck me most upon this, this rewatch was just how deeply sad it was when you think about, and probably what he was thinking about, even though he is there to retrieve the ricin is just how many happy memories they did have in the house. You know, I think about the house I live in and watching my children grow up and to think about coming back to that after a, a rash of horrible decisions and seeing it just completely unlike anything I'd ever seen before. You know, we talked a couple episodes ago about how in the beginning of the series, the, the white household was always very bright and it you usually saw it during the daytime and it right. felt very welcoming even though it was small and it just doesn't it's it's the complete opposite now and so what i found most striking about this was just how it felt how it made me feel and so that's why i picked it as my best moment i liked the spray paint on the walls inside this at heisenberg i thought that was yeah. a rather chilling touch yeah uh, i've got one nit to pick regarding that scene that we can talk about at the very end uh, but let's go on now to um, my best moment and my best writing and your best scene, because these are all kind of uh, intertwined. And it's basically the interaction between Hank and Walt. So the first part of that is my best moment nomination, um, in which we get this uh, remarkable line from Walt. I don't know who you are. I don't even know who I'm talking That's true. If you don't know who I am, then maybe your best course would be to tread lightly. I mean, that's just absolutely terrifying. <laughs> terrifying. It's it's terrifying, and it's it's even more terrifying because you sort of expect him to say, if you don't know, then believe who I am. I am your brother-in-law. Exactly. Like, I am the person you know. 
But instead, he goes the opposite direction is like, you better watch your back. It's terrifying. Yeah. Uh, and this is just obviously, you know, one small part of that whole interaction. And, and I also like this part as well, where where Hank is basically saying, like, look, I know who you are. I know I know what you did. And uh, and Walt, which is interesting, we can talk about this, but like Walt first takes the tack of like, you better tread lightly. But then he takes the opposite tack of like, I'm just a man dying of cancer. And that's where we get this right here. I'm a dying man who runs a car wash. My right hand to God, that is all that I am. So that is my best writing nomination, or I guess I should really say that's like an excerpt from my best writing nomination, which is really just this whole scene. Um, and Josh, I know this was your best scene nomination, so there's a lot to unpack here, but um, just a couple of my thoughts off the top of my head. Uh, you already mentioned kind of the, uh, the the apparel that Walt has on. It's interesting to me that Walt goes to Hank's house, literally confronts Hank in his own home about this, um, does it at first casually, and then not at all casually. But what I really think is interesting is this sort of schizophrenic approach in which first he's like, you don't have any proof. And even if you did, you you know I would never see the inside of a jail cell because I'm dying of cancer, et cetera. And then he tries to go with a sympathy card, you know, and my cancer is back. I'm a dying man. That's all I am, you know. Um, and obviously, Hank doesn't buy any of it. But I find the approach from Walt here really, really interesting and remarkable. It's almost like he he decided to switch strategies halfway through because the first one wasn't working. But if you're going to do that, you first go innocent and then you play hardball. You don't go hardball and then play innocent, right? It doesn't really work that way. So I just thought that was uh, kind of a faux pas on his part. But um, tell, tell me more about why you selected it as your best scene. I I, th I love how it's staged. I love that it's in the garage. I Even though there are some moments that are a little bit like film filmmakery or movie-like when, when Hank like shuts the garage on Walt, it, it just makes for like really dramatic and great television. I mean, that probably wouldn't happen in real life, but again, hopefully this whole thing doesn't happen in real life anyway. So <laughs> great point. Uh, I just like the way that it's staged. I like the different, I, what I find interesting about sort of Walt's changing, you know, tactics here is that it does show character shifts. So it allows Walt to be in control and then Walt to sort of be on the defensive and then Hank to be, you know, on the defensive and then Hank to try to be in control and, so I love that, that you can see that as well. And I just like that if you watch, like when they're talking, most of it is shot in close up. And then all of a sudden at the end, you get you pull back and it's just this wide shot, which just for the audience just makes you feel like the characters probably feel, which is completely disconnected from each other. And you sort of feel like separated a little bit from from like what you thought you knew. Um, so when they're sort of talking closely together and you get all these close-ups, you think maybe there's a chance they can repair this or something. We don't know what's going to happen here. But once the camera pulls back and you get this wide shot, you feel all of this space in between what used to be there. So I think that was a cool like technical decision as well. Yeah, I like all your points there. I also will add, we haven't talked about it, but it's, uh, it's, a, great, it's a great touch when as Walt is leaving, he tries to call Skyler to warn her. Yeah. And then he's told by his car wash employee that Scatter's on the phone. And he's like, wait, yeah. who is she talking to? And then he sees Hank on the phone. He's like, oh, no. Yeah. And then he just peels out. I mean, he's it's got to be the most inefficient exit ever. He just burns a ton of rubber while he's trying to <laughs> leave the neighborhood. What I, what I also like about this scene before we before we move on is just that at this point, you think as soon as Hank uncovers who Heisenberg is and knows that it's Walt, 
your initial thought is like, he's going to nail him. And totally. like, there's no totally. chance Walt gets away. But when you start thinking about it, what we'll learn in the next episode as Hank sort of investigates this more is that there's a lot more to it than just like saying it's this guy. He has to have like legitimate proof. And if he doesn't, then he's sort of going to be laughed out of the whole thing. Yeah. Well, and, and we'll find out next, next episode too. I mean, Hank has career considerations, right? Because it doesn't look good for him to have had, you know, for two years, his brother-in-law right under his nose as right. the meth kingpin and probably the whole country at this point. Yeah, exactly. So Josh, your best writing nomination is uh, Lydia trying to get Walt back into the game. So let's play a little, little bit of that right here. Please give this to your car wash professional and have an A1 day. Sixty-eight percent and falling. Good morning. May I have your ticket, please? I knew there would be a drop in quality, a sixty-eight percent. This is not what I agreed to. I left a viable operation. The rest was up to you. May I have your ticket, please? I'm only asking for a few days. A week at most. Call it a tutorial. That's the standard wash. Fix this. Get the ship back on course. We'll make it worth your while. That'll be $14.95, please. So I don't know if this reminds you of anything, but when I saw the scene, it reminds me very much of when Walt tries to go in to ask Gus about the GPS tracking device. That's so true. Good point. And... And, you know, it's just reversed now. So now Walt is the one behind the counter at his place of business and someone else tries to come talk to him about their illicit business and it's just reversed now. And so I think that I don't know if there are going to be more parallels to draw, you know, as the series concludes between Walt and Gus and sort of how, you know, their fates play out. We'll have to see. But I just find it interesting that despite Walt saying he doesn't want to operate like Gus, that he doesn't he's, he's his own man, he's got his own business now. Lots of things he's doing tend to look like what Gus is doing. He's trying to cover up this meth business with his his car wash business, just as Gus did with Los Pueros Hermanos. And I just find it really interesting that he's now on the other side of things. And now Lydia is the one coming to him as he did to Gus at one point. Yeah, I love that. Had not picked up on the the mirroring effect there, but I totally agree. And I really like that. Yeah, that's all I have on best writing. I just think it's a it's a great scene and it's another, you know, great the way that it's written, I think, was done purposefully to mirror that other scene. Yeah. Well, let's move on to Nits, Nits to pick here. Josh, what do you have on this episode, if anything? Well, I already talked about my first one, which was about Walt not finding leaves of grass in his bathroom. But my other one has to do with the the skate ramp in the pool. And that is that as makeshift skate ramps go, the white pool doesn't seem that great. It's pretty small. I'm not sure how, like, they, they're not really doing much. So, you know, like... I get the visual there that they want to show that it's run down enough that people are that these, you know, people are just like using it as a skate park. But to me, it's just like they might do one ride on it and be like, this stinks. Let's move on to a real skate. Yeah. Skate and they're park. like, what, five or six riders there. Yeah. yeah <laughs> they're like, all like, oh, let's, go, it's like let's go hang out at the pool, guys. <laughs> let's go hang out at the white pool. It's going to be <laughs> awesome. <laughs> That's a good point. All right. I've got a couple. Um, one is about the uh, flash forward scene as well. And that's the lady with groceries. Yeah, uh, her, his neighbor, what's, it, what's her name? Carol, I think, or something. Yeah, yeah. Um, it is. I just find it to be totally cartoonish when she drops the bag of groceries. You know, she's just yeah. like no one drops things like frozen that. and looking at him, and he says hello, Carol, and then she just drops the groceries, and we have like yeah. one little orange, I think, roll away. It, it was just it's very cartoonish, and I thought it was a bit, uh, you know, a bit contrived. Um, 
the other thing I'll say, Hank uses the same GPS tracker that Walt has used, which is like, if 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 Walt is the um, if Walt is the mastermind that Hank suspects he is at this point, he's probably already checking his car for GPS trackers, right? I mean, that's right. what that's what you do if you're covering your tracks. And Hank deems it intelligent to use the same tracker that he has had Walt use on Gus previously and puts it on Walt's car. So, of course, Walt recognizes it as the one that Hank used, when, by the way, Hank was operating on his own outside of the auspices of the DEA. And Walt, you know, it basically leads him right to him, and that's what Walt confronts Hank about. So I think that that was just a really dumb move by Hank. And really, I think Hank would be smarter smarter than that. So Yeah, uh, well, Hank's not made of money. So, you know, he can't just true. go you know, afford to buy the latest and greatest GPS device. Exactly. Oh, and uh, if you want to learn more about GPS, Josh, you can just go ahead, <laughs> just click that hyperlink in the description. Perfect. Uh, <laughs> all right, time for the MVP tally, and then we'll wrap it up here. So, Josh, who gets your MVP vote for this episode? I think it might surprise you a little bit, maybe not, but despite the, we didn't even talk about this, the the ridiculous car crash scene, which I think is just completely silly, I'm going to give it to Hank, and I think what, I, what I'm realizing about this episode and then the next episode too is that Hank plays a much bigger role, obviously, because he's the one who's discovering, but I think, I just like the way that, that Dean Norris plays, you know, the role as well. I think he's doing a really nice job because as we talked about, Hank is often this like brash character who's sort of like making cracking jokes in the office, but we're seeing a totally different side of him here. And obviously his confrontation with Walt and sort of, you know, their interaction is going to drive these next eight episodes forward. And so for those particular reasons, that's why I'm going to give him my vote for this one. Does not surprise me at all because that is also who I am going yeah, with. Uh, there we for, go. for all the reasons that you outlined, and I would just add... Uh, you can't touch on it, but I would just say that the garage scene was really remarkable by Dean Norris. I think he does a really good job. I mean, we heard in that excerpt I played, right? It was just like, I don't even, I don't even know. It's just, yeah. it's, it's yeah. like very, my, my noise gate there kind of cut out a little bit of my sound, but I, I couldn't, I can't do it as well as Dean Norris anyway, but just like so understated, this is like big brash Dean Norris, but here he is like really genuinely shocked and hurt and angered and, and saddened by the whole thing. So uh, I think really good acting job by Dean Norris. Really good job, as you pointed out, propelling the whole thing forward. So I agree, giving it to Hank. Anything else we missed, Josh? I think that's it for this episode. All right, so that is it for Season 5, Episode 9, Blood Money. If we missed anything, send us a note, breakingpod at vernacularpodcast.com. We'd love to hear from you. We'll read your listener feedback on the show. We'll, we'll send you an email back, uh, let you know we got it. And until next time, when we talk about Season 5, Episode 10, Buried, I'm Zach. And I'm Josh. Have a great week. 